to Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1. And today we begin a series in the book of Proverbs. Why is that? Why this particular book? Well, one reason is I generally try to alternate between the Old Testament and New Testament so that over time you get a fairly wide sampling of scriptural teaching through what we do in our worship hour. So we recently completed our study through the book of Revelation in the New Testament, so it's time for an Old Testament book. Now, before I give a, another reason for studying Proverbs, let me say that what I said just a minute ago, that we try in this hour to give a sampling of scriptural teaching, that needs a, a brief explanation. The reason I say it's a, a sampling is because that's really all you really can get in the very brief time that we have together on Sundays. If we average 40 minutes multiplied by the number of weeks, and I actually preach through a book about 40 weeks out of the year, the 52 weeks because of holidays and communion and having special speakers. So of those 40 then, you're looking at about 1,600 minutes in a year, and that's out of 525 1,600 minutes in the entire year. So you spend 524,000 minutes doing something other than being here listening to preaching. So based on that, it follows, does it not, that this cannot be your only or even your main intake of God's Word. In fact, if we covered every one of the 66 books of the Bible together, and it took six months for each of those, some would be longer, some shorter, but if you just average six months, it would take 33 years to cover the Bible. I'll probably be with the Lord by then, and in any case, I will have long ago turned the preaching duties over to a younger man. So we offer other ways to help each of us become what I call a self-feeder, those classes that Pastor Larry mentioned in our community institute during the midweek. Those are designed to help us all do that. We, this Friday, in our church-wide email, provided a Bible reading plan and also has a, a devotional for you for every day of this year, and so I encourage you to make use of that. So one reason we're doing this in the book of Proverbs is because I like to alternate between the New Testament and the Old Testament, but I've chosen this particular book of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, because it is timely. You see the title of the series on the screen living wisely in a foolish world. It's timely because the foolishness that characterizes our world becomes more acute every day. We see the foolishness in our world when we look at what people consider to be important, what it is they pursue with their lives and use their money to obtain. We see it in how people use and abuse the good gifts that a good God has given to move us in a good direction, abuse of marriages and homes are not as they are designed to be. We see that in the turmoil and the rancor and the ruptures that often occur in our families. Our bodies are abused by us, sometimes by others, not used as designed. Our government, no matter which party is in power, has no fixed principles by which it operates fiscally and morally. The fiscal malpractice of our government over many, many years is painfully evident. It spends more than it takes in every year. Its citizens follow suit. 
And we're aghast when we find that we're beholden to hostile powers like China from whom we have to borrow to stay afloat. Adherence to the wisdom of Proverbs would have kept us from this because it warns in chapter 22 and verse 7, quote, the borrower is servant to the lender. And so theologian Richard Mayhew says about this foolish condition of the world. He says, we live in a time when sin is paraded around as nothing more than sickness. Drug consumption is spoken of as recreation, when the family is considered outdated and an endangered species. Evil is labeled as good. Immorality is heralded as sexual freedom. Pornography is freedom of speech. Unbalanced budgets are the rule, not the exception. Homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle. Abortion is sugar-coated by calling it post-conception birth control. And lawlessness is condoned as liberation. So to where can we turn? To whom do we listen? And remember, friends, that was the question at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. To whom will you give your ear? To whom will you listen? And the serpent that hissed his lies in the garden still now speaks through a thousand megaphones. And our world still chooses to listen to him rather than to the one who made us. But a good God still speaks above the din. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the foolishness, the one who knows all about us, who knows the mess that we've made, who knows how we can avoid calamity in the future, this one cares enough about us to give light in the darkness, to give wisdom in the midst of pervasive foolishness. The sound of God's voice is heard in the book of Proverbs. And over the next several months together, I invite you, as I encourage myself, to listen and heed what he says. So let's pray now and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you that we are here. And we thank you that we can now open your book where you have revealed, you've made known yourself, you've made known your truth, your reason for making us your desires for your creatures, and in particular those who are your people. And so now we thank you that we can, at the beginning of this new year, Carve out this time to be instructed by you from your word. Grant us, Lord, that we will have attentive minds and open hearts to be changed by what you say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to follow along each week with the outline that we make available to you. As you came in today, those of you in the auditorium, you could have gotten that uh, at our main doors on the way in. I'll have the outline points on the screen anyway if you didn't get that. Those of you who are watching live stream, we have an outline button underneath or next to your media player. But I say, first of all, in that outline that God provides truth. Now, in theory at least, God does not need to communicate to us. If you think about it, God could have, if he so desired, left us to just figure it out on our own. God could have made us and said, have at it. But from the first moment of human existence, God has spoken to and instructed his creatures. And of all of his creation, it was to humanity alone that he spoke directly. Genesis 1 says this, God blessed them, that is the first man and woman, and he said 
to them. Now notice I have that phrase highlighted. He said to them. That's the first time in human history that God speaks to someone else. He makes them and he speaks to them. He made us to communicate with him, in particular to receive what he says. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. God gave direction to us from the very beginning. He gave an orientation to his world that has now become disoriented by the entrance of sin into it so that things are now distorted. Foolishness reigns and the wisdom of Proverbs is required. So our good God provides truth in Proverbs and in so doing, he provides an outstanding messenger. He gives us truth and he does that through this outstanding messenger that has given us the book of Proverbs. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. The vast majority of the Proverbs in this book are from Solomon, who, as Pastor Larry read earlier, was legendary in the ancient world for his wisdom. He was without question the most famous king in history. Under his leadership, Israel reached its pinnacle of greatness that is, its pinnacle until the future kingdom that we learned about in the book of Revelation. He ascended the throne that was left to him by his father David, and he established a kingdom that was renowned for its wealth and its wisdom. It is this one that God primarily chose to speak for him, to speak for God in the book of Proverbs. Now, some of you are like me, old enough to remember that E.F. Hutton commercial. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And that should be the case with the wisdom of Solomon. When Solomon speaks, we should listen. And shortly after Solomon was seated on the throne, the Bible says that the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It says this, God, asked, ask, God said, ask whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Now just wait one moment there. Just Picture yourself being asked by God, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. And he showed his wisdom by his request. And so God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And in Solomon's day, there was no king who was richer. Here was a man whose coffers overflowed with wealth. He had gold, he had silver, unimaginable. He had elaborate buildings and ornate gardens. As his fame spread, the queen of Sheba in Africa the Bible says, heard of his glory, she determined to visit this man and see his splendor firsthand. And she did indeed do that, the Bible records. And when she visited and she saw, she said, quote, the half has not been told. God gave Solomon, the Bible says, wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men in the east, greater than all of the wisdom of Egypt. 
He was wiser than any other man. His fame spread to the surrounding nations. As we read earlier, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. So God graciously provides truth for us. And in doing that, he uses an outstanding messenger. And he provides an understandable message. An understandable message. Because verse 1 says that what Solomon gave us are Proverbs. He gave us these Proverbs. So what is a proverb? It's a concise, memorable saying, expresses expresses a generally accepted observation about life as it's filtered through biblical truth, through biblical revelation. So it's a short, memorable saying expressing something that's generally accepted as people observe life, but it's filtered through the rest of what God says in His Word. So let me break that down a little bit. A proverb is concise and memorable. It's short, it's designed for you to be able to commit it to memory. We have them in English, a stitch in time saves nine. And a proverb, though, is, though simple, it's profound. Proverbs 21 and verse 2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Now the basic point is that people think they have an accurate self-evaluation for their own actions. But the Lord has an evaluation of their heart that's truly accurate because He has the ultimate perspective. Though that proverb is simple, it's still quite profound. God knows exactly what's in the heart of every single person better than each of us knows ourselves. And God, because of His omniscient knowledge, evaluates everyone according to His standard of holiness. And then these Proverbs are not only concise and memorable, simple and profound, they're also specific, but they have general application. Here's an example. Proverbs 26 and verse 27 says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. He who digs a pit is a specific thing. It specifically refers to someone laying a trap for another, and then he who rolls a stone refers to placing a weight upon one's opponent from which they cannot escape. But the result in either case in that proverb is the trap backfires. And so it's a specific illustration of a general point that one reaps what one sows. Now it's important for us to understand that these short, concise, memorable, simple but profound, specific but general sayings that are the Proverbs are general truths. They are not legal guarantees. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's a That's a proverb, but that's a general truth that if you eat healthy, then generally you'll be healthy. But of course, people who eat healthy sometimes just drop dead, right? So it's a general truth. It's not a legal guarantee. I remember many years ago, there was a guy named Jim Fix, F-I-X-X, and he was promoting running, and lots of people were getting into jogging, and he was very fit, but he dropped dead, you know, while while running. And so I I avoid running in order to, to stay alive. Well, Proverb is a, is a, gener- it's a general truth, not a legal guarantee. And so you have, for example, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if that's a legal guarantee, that means if you raise your kid right, they always, without fail, turn out right. 
It's generally true that if you raise your child right, they go in the way that they were raised, but it's not invariably true. It's not a legal guarantee. And Proverbs, then, are things that we use because they're short like this, because they can pack a really profound message. They are used outside of the Bible very often. Benjamin Franklin wrote Poor Richard's Almanac. It's full of these little nuggets of, of wisdom. But Proverbs that are not from God, while they can be helpful with things like he who hesitates is lost or the early bird gets the worm, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but many people concoct and cite and use Proverbs that can be misleading. How many times have you said or heard where there's smoke, there's fire? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to have fire before you have smoke. That's true. But generally, what that means is something like if there's a controversy and then there's heat around that, then you can say there must be something to it. Well, what that means is somebody can just create controversy and then make it seem like there's really something to it. If all people do is say, well, where there's smoke, there's fire. If I create a bunch of controversy, we've got a bunch of that going on in our country right now, by the way, around an election. What you have to do is you have to make the connection between that particular fire and the particular smoke that you're claiming it was caused, uh, caused it. Or saying something like, where there's a will, there's a way. That can be dangerous because it's not always the case that you can get out of what you're in. That would not have been a good proverb for the Samaritan to use when he encountered a man who had been beaten and robbed. Hey, where there's a will, there's a way. And keep moving. And some of these false proverbs that are used falsely, applied in ways they should not, even take on biblical status I remember some years ago, somebody saying to me, not somebody here, but somebody saying to me, you know, where's that verse where it says God helps those who help themselves? <laughs> and I said, that's poor Richard's almanac. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. In fact, it's quite contrary to the Bible. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. And then he, and then he strengthens us to be able to do what we do. Or, you know, Jiminy Crick Cricket, for heaven's sake, becomes a prophet. Let your conscience be your guide. People think that kind of thing is in the Bible. Or, charity begins at home. Meaning, the way it's applied, don't give to anybody else until you've given to, until you've given to yourself first. Well, okay, that can be okay advice. Except here's what the Bible says. Brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in the service to the, the saints. Good things come to those who wait. We often say, do good things always happen for those who wait? Not always. We need to be careful how we apply these and understand these. So, a proverb is a concise, memorable saying expressing a generally accepted observation about life that's filtered through biblical truth, biblical revelation. Now, one impediment to people benefiting from the book of Proverbs is that the book, if you've read through it, or if you've read portions of it, it seems to be disconnected. So it's hard to put the message together in a coherent fashion. One scholar said this, it seems to be a hodgepodge collection. 
having no rhyme or reason in its grouping of sayings. They jump from one topic to another like scatterbrains in a living room conversation. <laughs> so how does one teach and preach such a mishmash, he says. Now the main way to solve that apparent but not real issue is for us to see that there is in fact rhyme and reason to the book. And we can see that if we understand its structure. Just like the key to understanding the book of Revelation that we went through over 15 months was to see how it's structured, same is true for the book of Proverbs. You see, the book of Proverbs reflects that it's a collection of separate collections of wisdom material. The 31 chapters that are the book of Proverbs are actually several separate collections of wisdom material, of Proverbs. And in fact, there are seven of these collections in Proverbs. And they were later collected into what we now have as the book of Proverbs. I'm going to give you those seven quickly. The very first section starts chapter 1 and verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, the king of, of Israel. And that goes all the way to the end of chapter 9. So in our opening messages in this series, we're going to be in that opening collection of wisdom from Solomon. And you'll notice as we go through chapter 9 that it does not have these short, pithy sayings that are normally what we associate with Proverbs. Rather, it is setting the stage, setting the context for the rest of the book of Proverbs. So the first nine chapters do that. That's one collection. But then the next collection starts in chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 1, and it starts the Proverbs of Solomon. And those go all the way through chapter, the middle of chapter 22. And then in chapter 22 and verse 17, 22, 17, you have a third collection, the sayings of the wise. And then those go into chapter 24. And when you get to chapter 24 and verse 23, you have more sayings of the wise. A separate collection added to this collection called the sayings of the wise. Chapter 25 and verse 1 says this, more Proverbs of Solomon, but it adds, compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So remember that Pastor Larry read earlier that Solomon had 3,000 Proverbs? The men of Hezekiah, apparently, took some of those and collected those, and we now have those in the book of Proverbs. So that's five of these sections. And then there's a sixth in chapter 30 and verse 1. And they're called, in that verse, the sayings of Agur. And then the last chapter, chapter 31 in verse 1, the sayings of, of King Lemuel. So that's the way this book is structured. And if you see it that way then, you'll understand it's not a hodgepodge, in fact. If you see them within their contained collection, now they make sense and they have some order to them, and we will see that as we go through the book together. So God provides his truth to us through an outstanding messenger, an understandable message. He gives us these short, memorable, concise sayings called Proverbs, and he has structured the book in an understandable way. And in so doing, God provides truth for what we need. 
Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction for understanding words of insight. Verse 2 provides the two purposes for the entire book of Proverbs in verse 2. The first purpose is that we, the students, will develop skillfulness and discipline in holy living. It says wisdom, and that basically means skill. This word describes the skill of the craftsmen who worked in the tabernacle. The Bible says, I have given skill. And that word, that Hebrew word translated skill, is the same word as wisdom here in verse 2 of Proverbs 1. I have given wisdom, skill, to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you, the Lord said. It's used of sailors who were in a, in a storm and they didn't know what to do. And here's what it says. Seasoned sailors were at their wits end. That phrase, at their wits end, is a phrase that comes from there. They were at their, their wits end, uh, but their wits are wisdom, their skill. They had nothing else they, they could do to control the situation. It sometimes refers to administrative skill, wisdom from God to administer justice, the Bible says. It sometimes refers to wise advice from a counselor. They gave to all the people her wise advice. So in the book of Proverbs, wisdom signifies skillful living, the ability to make wise choices and to live successfully according to the moral standards that God's given to his people. And the one who lives skillfully produces things that are of lasting value before God and for others. The other object that is to be acquired, according to verse 2, is instruction or discipline. Same word, instruction, discipline. And that's what's to be acquired, wisdom, and then the necessary companion to that wisdom is this discipline, instruction. It refers to the training of our moral nature, involving the correcting of waywardness that moves us toward foolishness, and instead the development of reverence to the Lord and of personal integrity. Now those two things, that wisdom and the, the discipline slash instruction, those two things are explained further in verses 3 and 4. Now you've got the second part of verse 2. That's going to be explained in verse 6. We'll see that in a bit. But for now, just those two things, wisdom and the discipline slash instruction, those are explained further in verses 3 and, and 4, where the Bible tells us God provides instructions for how to behave, how to behave. Because verse 3 says this, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior. So that instruction that verse 2 talked about is now to produce, according to verse 3, prudent behavior. To act prudently means to act appropriate to the circumstances. The prudent person in each circumstance has a self-awareness in what he or she says, in what he or she does, and the effects that their words and their actions will have. That prudent life is seen in the second part of verse 3 doing what is right and just and fair. Now that first term, right or righteousness, means conforming to a standard. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 15, Deuteronomy 25 verse 15, it uses weights and measures and talks about weights and measures on a scale as being righteous or unrighteous. You know why? Because righteousness is conforming to a standard and weights that conform rightly to what they say they really are are then righteous weights. Spiritually, it's what's right according to the standard of God's word, conduct that conforms to the moral standards God has given to his people. And prudent acts will exhibit justice. That's that second thing at the second part of verse 3. It will be right and it will be just. It refers to a decision to do what's fitting or proper. The book of Proverbs will develop a life that has a sense of propriety in making decisions. And then thirdly, at the end of verse 3, fairness. The Hebrew word translated fair means upright, straight. It describes what's pleasing. This book, the book of Proverbs, will instruct a lifestyle that displays the most pleasing aspects of life. So the student of the book of Proverbs is going to acquire discipline, instruction, according to verse 2, but it's going to produce this prudent life in verse 3, and that prudent life is going to be demonstrated by doing what's right and just and fair. And verse 4 goes on to say, forgiving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. So verse 3 is about receiving, and now I want you to notice in verse 4, it's about giving. Verse 4 is not now then about the student, but about the teacher. The one who's seeking to provide this wisdom to someone else. The giving of this to the simple, to the young. That teacher may be a formal instructor or, as was most common, parents in Israel, father and mother. The teacher will give shrewdness to the simple or naive person. This naive or simple person is one who's gullible. They're easily enticed. They fall into traps. The instructor wants to give that kind of person the ability to see evil before it happens, prepare for it, so that they'll be able to avoid traps in life. And the second part of verse 4 parallels simple and naive with immature youth. And it parallels shrewdness or prudence with knowledge and discretion. Knowledge and discretion refers to devising plans, perceiving the best course of action for gaining a goal. Now verse 4 has talked about the simple, the gullible, the naive, the young. But then verse 5 makes clear, because if you just read that, you think, okay, this book is for young people. And it was, in large part, for parents to instruct young people in the way of wisdom. But verse 5, at the very beginning of Proverbs, goes out of its way to insert and make sure that we understand that it's not only for the simple, the naive, the gullible, the young. Notice verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. So the person who's already wise, the person who's already discerning, can still add to their learning, can still get guidance, according to verse 5. Those who've already attained some measure of those qualities have still not arrived, and so we all still need what's in this book. Everyone can grow by its teaching. So God provides instructions on how to behave and on how to think. 
The second major purpose of the book of Proverbs is at the end of verse 2. So back up at verse 2. Verse 2 gives you the two major purposes for Proverbs. And the second one is at the end of verse 2, for us to acquire understanding or discernment. And to discern means to distinguish between things, to compare concepts, to form evaluations, to make analogies. Doing that will help us choose words of insight, training us to discern lessons about life, such as distinguishing permanent values from immediate gratifications. And I mentioned to you earlier that that last part, that second thing that Proverbs is about, this discernment and this uh, words, so that we can, we can choose words of insight and live our lives according to, to those, that that's explained in verse 6. And verse 6 says, For understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. It means this, friends. That as we study and apply this book, we'll become accustomed to how wise people talk. <laughs> and we'll be able to understand and make use of their wisdom. One of the things that wise people do is they're very judicious in the use of their words. And so they find ways to say a lot in fewer words. Ah, oh, what a blessing that would be. They don't waste words, and so they find ways to communicate large truths with fewer words and expending less time. They don't entertain as they instruct. If you're here right now, and you have the privilege of having open before you the book of Proverbs, God's book of wisdom, and you're saying to yourself, man, I need the preacher to like jump around and pop and dazzle and do a little dance, you're at the wrong place. But that's what so many in our culture desire. But the wise don't entertain, they instruct. And those who want wisdom will learn to listen and understand and put into practice. God provides what we need for how to behave, how to think, and lastly, how to obey. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the foundation, that verse, that phrase, the foundation of the entire book. The two purposes for the entire book are in verse 2. The foundation upon which the entire book is built Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I want you to notice it says the fear of the Lord. It could say the fear of God is the beginning of, of knowledge. But instead it says the fear of the Lord. And notice in your, in your English translation the way that word Lord is printed. It is all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Other times in your Bible, you'll see the word Lord, capital L, but then the other three letters are small. And what that means is every time you see all four of the letters capitalized for Lord, it's translating the personal name of God given to His people to identify their relationship with Him, Yahweh. This is the name of God that God, in Exodus chapter 3, 
gave as his personal name to Moses when God called Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And you remember Moses says, who shall I say sent me? Say that I am has sent you. I am that I am. This name, Yahweh, is related to the verb of being. I simply the one who, who am, who is, and always has been. And so it became the personal name of God for God's people in Israel, Yahweh. And so this wisdom now that we're going to see in 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs is not just general wisdom that everybody can do. There are lots of general Proverbs out there. There is indeed much natural theology in the book of Proverbs. But all of it is designed to be seen in light of the God of Israel, the true and living God, Yahweh, and our relationship with Him. And that's how it's to be played out, and that's how it's to be understood. It's wisdom only for those who are in relationship with Him. And this phrase, the fear of the Lord, just like one will not understand the word butterfly by under, analyzing the word butter and fly, you can't understand fear of the Lord by simply studying fear and Lord in isolation from each other. That term, the fear of the Lord, is of a peace. It's taken together elsewhere in Scripture. It's equivalent to truth from God that can be taught and memorized. Truth from God that can be taught and memorized, encapsulated in fear of the Lord. It sometimes is referred to as his law, his statutes, his commands, his ordinances. Here's an example. Psalm number 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. The fear of the Lord is pure. The ordinances of the Lord are sure. Do you see that? You've got the, the law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, the ordinances, and then right in the midst of that, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is about obeying God's precepts, His laws, His commands, His ordinances. It's something that can be taught and understood and memorized and put into practice. It refers to a standard of moral conduct known and accepted by, by people in general and it motivates people to right behavior even when an outside authority doesn't enforce moral sanctions if you don't do it. That would be fear of God. If it said fear of God, that would just be this accepted by people in general. But fear of the Lord refers to the Lord's special revelation, whether it comes through Solomon, whether it came through Moses, whether it came through the prophets. Remember verse 1 says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of what? The king of Israel. To whom came the law, to whom came the, the prophets. And now Solomon is building upon that, this wisdom from God that we are to appropriate and obey. And in the Bible, the fear of the Lord also involves an emotional response. Of hear this, a fear of love and trust. The book of Deuteronomy treats Love of the Lord and fear of the Lord as the same thing. In Isaiah chapter 29, Israel had a distorted, God says, fear of me. 
And so it's rejected precisely because it's made up only of rules taught by, by men. We'll see in chapter 2 of Proverbs, beginning in verse 1, that the fear of the Lord is found through heartfelt prayer, diligent seeking of what the wise one says in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 15, humility and fear of the Lord are parallel to each other. In chapter 22 and verse 4, humility is defined as the fear of the Lord. And so when we as his people, and he's Yahweh, he's our personal God, we are his children. When we're in relationship with him and we desire to obey him and he gives us this teaching that can be memorized and can be put into, put into practice. When he does that, yes, the fear of the Lord elicits in us a love for him. We want to do those things because we love him. We love him because he has first loved us. And so fear and love in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, are used synonymously. In C.S. Lewis' classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the Chronicles of Narnia, children enter through the wardrobe, a fantasy world where the events and characters in Narnia represent the biblical story. Christ is represented by Aslan, the great lion. When the beaver, the guide, briefs the children about Narnia, he mentions the lion. And the children ask this, is he safe? And the beaver says, of course not, <laughs> but he is good. As people in general are motivated to obey their consciences out of fear of God, so God's people that are his own possession respond to his moral requirements apart from legal or church requirements. For us, the fear of the Lord is just as real as their love for him, as our love for him. Both of these, fear and our love for Him, are rooted in our faith. We believe His promises and we love Him. We believe His threats and we fear Him. To summarize it, one has said it this way, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Proverbs. Here's your take-home truth. God knows what we need, and God cares enough to provide it for us, and he's done so in the book of Proverbs. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us, allowing us to open your book. We thank you for providing this collection of your wisdom, all of these millennia later, so that we can have it, we can read it, and by your spirit and by your aid, apply it to our lives. We look forward, Lord, to what you're going to do in and through us as we study your wisdom. Help us, Lord, to ponder this coming week what you have said at the very beginning of this marvelous book. And to ask ourselves whether we indeed are children of God. Do we know you as our personal Savior? And is that evident in our lives? Are we people who desire wisdom? Are we people who get it at every opportunity, seeking to learn, and then what we learn does not simply puff us up so that we have more knowledge, but rather we seek to dispense that in love for you and in love for others, to display that you are making changes in our lives by the wisdom that you've imparted to us. Help us, Lord, to evaluate our lives 
And help us to attend and attend our ears and our hearts so that we will grow and please you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together now for our closing song.